Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Moving into uh, Ontario today as we kind of move across the country interviewing uh, behavior analysts uh, doing uh, some really cool things. And today I'm especially honored to have uh, Louis Bush on the podcast with me. Thanks for coming today, Louis. Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, Ben. I think uh, I've been listening to a couple of your last ones and I'm excited to contribute. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're pretty keen. And I, I think uh, from our previous conversations, we might uh, get a get a couple episodes out of you. So that's pretty cool. Uh, a little bit about uh, about Louis. Uh, Louis is a Bear Clan member of the Nisichawesik Cree Nation and a community support specialist with the uh, Shikabe Makwa uh, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, Louis is a board-certified behavior analyst with over a decade of experience supporting individuals with complex needs, including those living with severe mental illness, neurodevelopmental disability, acquired brain injury, and other behavioral health challenges. Louis has a master's of education from the University of Calgary and is currently pursuing doctoral studies in community development at the University of Toronto. He's a part-time professor with George Brown College's Behavioral Science Technology Program and past president of the Ontario Association for Behavior Analysis. Uh, Louis hopes to continue to contribute to positive social change through the advancement of behavioral health services, education, and public policy uh, that promotes the uh, recovery and empowerment of marginalized peoples. Probably my favorite bio so far. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Really cool. Doing lots of cool things. I I think one line you had mentioned to me um, uh, when we kind of had our pre-chat a few weeks back, it was uh, never do the same thing twice. And that's that's clear in, in your bio. So once again, just uh, really, really glad to have you here. The focus of kind of today's episode is going to be um, an article that Louis wrote along with a, a few other folks um, called uh, The Treatment of Life-Threatening PICA with five-year follow-up. I think it was the five-year follow-up that really kind of drew me to the article. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to diving in that soon. But before we get to that, uh, Louis, I wonder if you could just kind of give us a bit of your origin story, kind of how you got into, um, uh, you know, the field of a behavior analysis and uh, kind of what led you to um, the context of this study. And uh, and then we can start kind of talking about that. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, uh, happy to dive into that a bit and uh, and to, to explore this article. It's been a while since I, I thought about it. So it was, uh, you know, it's great to have another look at it and to think about uh, the work I did with some, some really uh, awesome colleagues. And I'll, I'll uh, talk a bit more about that. But I guess as far as origin stories go, I was, I, I guess it would start with being a pretty weird kid and, uh, you know, having all kinds of behavior problems of my own <laughs> growing up in school and, and really being really fascinated by the human condition, I guess. And I think a lot of behavior analysts have this where they, you know, throughout their lives are kind of looking at people and thinking, uh, why do you do that? Or why do we do that? Those things that we do. <laughs> and so this question, it always uh, haunted me uh, since as far as I can remember. And, uh, you know, I used to I used to write things down or do, you know, little stories and poems and things about this kind of thing. And I, I never really knew, obviously, it wasn't uh, as sophisticated as as um, some of the uh, uh, science and behavior stuff that, that you see now. Um, but it was always about observing people and, and trying to make connections and uh, looking at the relationships uh, that people have between each other and their environments, and so that was kind of always in the always there for me. But uh, you know, I had a number of plans growing up, 
um, about what I wanted to be and, uh, you know, everything that ranged from, you know, a, a police officer to, you know, a psychologist. And I, I remember I wanted to be um, a forensic scientist. I, I had said for a long time, my, my uh, dad uh, was with the RCMP for for many years, like 35 years. And uh, we were we were in Regina, Saskatchewan, near the police detachment there, the uh, the training center for RCMPs. And uh, I got to visit their, their uh, kind of forensic analysis uh, unit there when I was really young, probably like, you know, grade seven or eight, and um, was super fascinated by the work people were doing there. Um, uh, the, other, the other part was my mom was in restorative justice and, and uh, was the executive director of one of the, the first restorative justice programs out, out in Regina. And uh, so these two things made quite a bit of impact on me. And I always thought, oh, that'd be really cool. And I, I wasn't even sure what it was, to be honest, <laughs> you know, the mm-hmm. forensic, a forensic psychologist or a forensic scientist. And like a lot of people, I think that come into the field, uh, I probably had that definition, that law and order definition, right? right? That, that the guy, the guest guy that comes in in law and order and talks about, <laughs> you know, the crime scene or the profile of the of the killer or those things. So I, I kind of had this really glamorized version of what that meant in my mind and you know psychology and a couple different things were were pretty interesting to me but as i as i completed high school i I had applied to to a couple of psychology programs and a few other things in ontario and i didn't get into any of them (laughs) i think i applied for like three or four universities and i got rejection letters from every single one and i you know i was you know i i i wasn't to be you know, completely honest, I wasn't a very good student in, in high school. And, uh, you know, I struggled mostly by not going, you know, <laughs> I think when I went, I really enjoyed it. And I think I did well. But, yeah. uh, um, you know, it, uh, especially the last few few years of, uh, of high school. So anyway, I, I, I did the working thing and, you know, paid rent and, uh, and worked some really tough jobs for for a few years. Um, and then, started to kind of realize that I didn't necessarily want to be driving forklifts or lifting heavy boxes around or doing demolition uh, forever. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those, but uh, just for me, I just started to really feel, um, you know, the, that something was missing. And, and I actually have to give credit to my mom. Uh, she kind of sprung an intervention on me where, you know, she asked me to come with her to the laundromat and, um, and then we would have lunch uh, and basically read me the riot act and just hmm. said something along the lines of, you know, what are you doing? You know, what are you, what are you doing? Feel like, why aren't you in school? Why aren't you giving back to, to the community? Like hmm. you, you're, you're wasting time, you know? And it just, it, uh, it left me with, uh, even a more, uh, intense sense of urgency, you mm-hmm. know, that I should be doing something anyway. So longer story, long story, a bit longer, I, um, applied for for a couple programs in Toronto. I was planning on moving there with a with a you know, number of friends, and um, I actually got accepted to a number of law clerk programs and to a uh, behavior science technology program at George Brown. And mm. I'm not going to say it was a, a coin flip, but it was it was a bit close to that. You know, I was yeah. like mm, yeah, law clerk, this behavior science thing. I didn't really know you know, what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had a lot of interest. Uh, and as I said, lots of, lots of kind of personal experience, uh, you know, in, in things like, you know, uh, family trauma and mental health and all these things. And, uh, 
you know, uh, being indigenous, uh, you know, and uh, having the experience of, of uh, colonization in Canada, I think I don't mm-hmm. think there's an indigenous person out there that that hasn't intersected with a lot of those those issues. Um, and so so those things were 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 part of my life. And uh, I ended up going towards behavior science technology. I chose that program over law clerk and I'm, I'm you know, very happy I did. And so. Again, like a lot of people, I think I stumbled into that uh, classroom, that first classroom, not really knowing what to expect. I had read the descriptions and all the, all that stuff in like the school catalog or whatever. But, you know, when you're, you know, from the outside of the field, you're like, OK, I don't know what any of that means, but sounds neat, you know. But the first that first class, I had uh, just such a great lineup of of uh, professors, mm. uh, you know, uh, Rudy Vaught and uh, Andrew McNamara Jerry Bernicke, these are just like, you know, these really charismatic uh, behavior analysts that really, you know, want to save the world with behavior analysis and just love it. And you can see the passion. Hmm. And uh, uh, I think after like the first 45 minutes in uh, Andrew McNamara's class, I was just like hooked. And, and I had the feeling, I think that maybe other people have, is that, you know, I've always been a behavior analyst mm. or a behavior scientist, and I just didn't know what to call it. I didn't know what yep. this was and, yep. until now. Um, but so I kind of had this epiphany moment where I was like, oh, oh, my goodness, this is what I want to do. I want to help people. I want to I want to uh, kind of measure change and I want to explore all these different areas. And I, you know, and so as I got into it, I uh, like most people's journey, not everybody, but a lot of people's journeys started off uh, supporting younger kids with autism and you know, there's something about that work uh, where, uh, you know, within a span of weeks, you can see skills develop at such an astronomical rate. You see independence improving. You see communication improving. You know, you see, you know, you know, you see a kid who really struggled with with uh, social interaction approach another kid and ask to play. And that's something that you worked on with them. Right. And you just have this sense of like I'm making a difference. I can see it happening mm-hmm. in real time. And so uh, from from there, I was even more hooked and then got into working with uh, with um, some older kids, adolescents, and then, you know, had a couple of cases with uh, with uh, another professor of mine that's been really influential uh, in my in my career path, uh, Ken Hamilton. Mm. And so we we did a couple uh, cases, more complex cases together where I got to see, you know, the, the functional assessment, functional analysis in action for, you know, severe self-injury and aggression. And then got to work with older kids and then eventually, uh, you know, a couple adult cases. And uh, uh, that's where I really, you know, uh, kind of grew a, a passion for supporting adults with um, assorted behavioral health needs, right? So first, uh, you know, neurodevelopmental disorders and genetic disorders and, you know, behavioral uh, issues, but then also mental health problems, you know, severe mm. mental illness, schizophrenia, uh, personality disorders, et cetera. Wow. Uh, and so this was, you know, it sounds kind of like a fast progression, but it was a very slow kind of building of competency and scope of practice with many uh, very, uh, you know, powerful mentors along the way that helped me kind of build those skills. And, and sorry to uh, interrupt, but was, is, was this all still during undergrad? No, no. So uh, I after I finished up undergrad, I, you know, I went and did the, um, you know, intensive behavioral intervention thing for, for like a center-based and and then mm-hmm. community-based uh, uh, programs for a number of years, and then just did uh, um, kind of private work with uh, Ken Hamilton um, with his consultation 
um, team mm. and, uh, you know, drove out to different places in Ontario and we would encounter some very complex cases. And most of the time at the beginning, I was like, you know, graphing the data and, you know, doing doing that the kind of the junior therapist type work. And then yep. eventually, you know, Ken started encouraging me to, you know, maybe put together the assessments and, you know, run conditions and things like that. So I got, you know, I got gradually the opportunity to develop those. So, yeah, this was after the after the kind of the undergraduate Mm. Um, and then, uh, uh, I was able to, you know, pursue, uh, uh, masters, uh, at the university of Calgary, which was, uh, which was a really great program. And then also did, uh, uh fit courses, uh, cause the UFC wasn't, uh, necessarily a behavior analytic program. It wasn't like your classic, you know, approved, uh, sequence, right. uh, uh, program. So I did both at the same time and, uh, just found that, you know, stressful, but really enriching educational experience. So mm-hmm. I eventually got hired at, um, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is uh, Canada's largest uh, uh, mental health teaching hospital. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's an enormous organization, I think, that helps a lot of people. And it has programs in uh, neurodevelopmental disability, eating disorders, youth mental health, you know, first episode psychosis, a very large schizophrenia program, very large uh, forensic mental health program. I think the largest forensic mental health program in Canada. And so my first gig there was as a behavior therapist on a um, dual diagnosis inpatient unit. So primarily mm-hmm. adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities who had some other complexity, right? So when you say dual diagnosis, that definition is really like, and there's something else going on, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the, people think of it classically as being, you know, you have ID and you have a mental health diagnosis, and right. that is true, but there's also others that fall into the dual diagnosis category because of their behavioral health complexities or because of, like, really complex genetic profiles and that. So mm. we we kind of got it, got everybody referred to this program, and uh, it was a it was it was a very strong program. Looking back, uh, you know, it's an interprofessional team with psychology and social work and occupational therapy, recreational therapy, obviously psychiatry and nursing. And just such a rich uh, set of perspectives that, um, you know, it wasn't always very easy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> navigating all the different uh, schools of thought in that and finding ways to collaborate um, with supporting very complex individuals and, and their families. Um, but looking back, I, I'm just, you know, amazed by the work that we were able to do together and, and how collaborative it really was. So I spent, uh, I think, about um, six years in kind of various positions in the neurodevelopmental program or the mm-hmm. dual diagnosis program, as it was called before. And that's where that's where I encountered uh, the case that I'll talk about today, uh, which the article is based on. And then after after about six years of that, uh, I moved over to our forensic mental health program. Mm. And uh, as as I was working in dual diagnosis, I was exposed to to a, a number of individuals that were within the forensic mental health system. So they had an intellectual disability, but they had committed a crime. They were charged with a crime and were found either unfit to stand trial or not criminally responsible for that, mm-hmm. for that crime. And most of the time it was things like, you know, assault or, you know, uh, mischief or things like that. But they were, sometimes they were very serious, right? Sometimes they were uh, murder or mm. uh, assault causing bodily harm, things like that. So then when I moved over to the forensic mental health program, I started being able to, to interact with clients without an intellectual disability, with 
schizophrenia, antisocial mm. personality disorder, you know, various mood disorders, um, borderline personality disorder, and started to kind of build uh, capacity um, there working with, you know, some really great psychologists and people with experience and, and uh, definitely getting supervision uh, mm-hmm. along the way. So it, w- it was a process of kind of you know, expanding scope carefully uh, and with a lot of support. But uh, uh, eventually I started to, to feel uh, more confident in, in addressing some of these more complex uh, issues. So I worked on a forensic inpatient unit for, for another five years or so and uh, supporting people in their journey of like entering the forensic mental health system and then, you know, very gradually moving out back to the community. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about, forensic mental health people think like oh it's uh you know if you get not criminally responsible it's like get out of jail free and you know, mm. you know but the reality is the opposite a lot of the times where you know you could be charged with assault because you you threw something at somebody or sure. um you spat on someone yeah and whereas if i did that uh i might not see the inside of a jail cell or no. and if i did you know maybe i would get three months or something you know it's, it's very unlikely that if i you know ran up and punched someone in the street that I would spend a long time in, in jail. Yeah. But but if you have a if you have a mental illness and you're found not criminally responsible, you don't have a sentence, uh, at least not in Ontario. And each province has their own review boards that that kind of make these guidelines. But my understanding is that they're similar. But your uh, liberties, the decisions made about your uh, liberties is based on your the ongoing assessment of your risk, right? Mm. And so basically, you can return to the community when you're no longer a threat. Uh, to the to the community, um, and for some people uh, with with you know long term challenges and um, you know kind of unresolved uh, mental health issues or really you know treatment resistant as some, sometimes I'll hear that terminology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you could spend twenty years for that spitting on someone right? yep. or for for punching and and that's the case particularly for individuals with intellectual disability is they spend a lot longer in the forensic mental health system because they tend to, one, they tend to not have great community support, so there isn't somewhere good for them to go. And two, they engage in, um, you know, behavioral challenges that when, you know, under the microscope of actuarial risk assessments um, look like risk to the community, right? So if if you're having a behavioral disturbance once a month even, uh, when you go to that annual review and they say, oh, you had like 12 outbursts which required, you know, PRN medication or, mm-hmm. or uh, seclusion mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever, you know, that's to, to the review board that might signal you're not ready to go to a less secure disposition or for community living. So yeah, the forensic, that I, I really like that experience in forensic mental health. And, um, as I mentioned, when we were chatting before, uh, I get bored pretty easy. And, <laughs> uh, uh, even though that was really exciting work, um, I like to, to try something new, uh, and any of the research I've done, uh, you know, no, no two kind of articles or projects have ever been the same. Um, and so recently, just in the last year, I've moved over to um, Shikabe Makwa, which is uh, mm. uh, an Aboriginal engagement outreach program. And my my uh, core responsibility right now is developing mental health trainings for First Nations, Inuit and Métis staff, you know, that are trauma informed and culturally relevant so I've been having a ton of fun doing that, and of course I'm bringing my, my the knowledge that I built over the years in, in behavioral science to um, to that role, and we're doing some trainings on things like, you know, indigenizing acceptance commitment therapy um, or strength based approaches for for challenges in schools uh, that is very kind of culturally informed, and, or uh, even even exploring uh, topics like 
harm reduction or you know indigenous harm reduction and, and mm-hmm. really and really working to indigenize um, some of these some of these concepts and to build build from the ground up you know new things uh, working with community partners and traditional knowledge keepers and so mm. um, I've found that this to be really really uh, enriching experience and uh, I look at it as as uh, a step further in my in my journey in this world of behavior analysis towards a, a cultural behavior analysis um, or or even uh, you know um, cultural level um, selection and and, uh, and and also um, also exploring things like system science and some of the other some of the other kind of philosophies that can really contribute uh, to to understanding how um, large-scale interventions and you know policy and history and mm-hmm. things things like that impact people's health people's behavioral health right um, so I've, I've kind of moved from a uh, I guess if you looked at it at, from like an ecological systems kind of framework, I've gone from the kind of the micro level or even the uh, the nano level and started to slowly expand out into those uh, you know macro uh, macro and meso systems, and I'm, I'm mm. having a lot of a lot of fun doing that. Mm. So that's my very long winded uh, kind of origin story and kind of how I how I got to uh, to this point today. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com to purchase your credits. You'll also need the three secret words. The first secret word is Toronto. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I think listeners can already see how we could unpack this into several episodes. And I definitely do want to do a second episode you know, really focusing on the Shikabe Makwa experience uh, that you're having and uh, really kind of dive deep into that because I think that stuff is really interesting and really cool and really relevant. And um, kind of on a side note, um, we do offer, we're offering, uh, you know, BACB uh, continuing education credits for the podcast, but um, we're also going to start offering, um, I don't know if you're familiar, this will be new to some of the listeners, but we're going to start offering continuing education credits for the International Behavior Analyst Organization. I don't know if you're familiar with these folks, but essentially, very short, but they're a, they're a accreditation board that's re- recently developed in light of some of the changes that the BACB will be going through in 2022 as far as certifying folks outside North America. And so it's going to be a sort of, basically, it's a certification um, uh, system for everywhere else in the world. And uh, I've been, I've had a privilege of being on their uh, professional advisory board and kind of helping develop some of their systems. And one piece that I was really, I really pushed for and went through was to add another category of continuing education unit called a cultural continuing education unit, sort of separate from an ethics one. And so definitely when we do uh, uh, our next episode, you could be my, one of my first, uh, cultural uh, CEUs. So that'd oh, be great. Yeah, 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 happy to do that. Yeah, right on. Actually, my, my second one, uh, as we were talking sort of before the we started recording, uh, the first one was the my discussion with the behavior analyst in Senegal, which we'll see that down the road as well. You know, kind of hinted on a few things before we kind of get into the Pike article that just really kind of resonated for me. Uh, first off, I mean, the, I, I definitely envious of the, of the CAMH. Um, I, I would love to have had... Uh, 
an opportunity to work in a place like that and just have all these experiences with so many different kind of levels of supervision from folks that aren't even behavior analysts, you know, I think, which is really interesting. Um, and being able to sort of network with those folks and probably, you know, um, pass on some, you know, some behavior analytic information to those folks. I'm, I'm curious, sort of, um, I, I can't imagine that the, that the CAMH, you know, started as a, you know, an, an organization that, you know, embraced behavior analysis. Um, I, I mean, certainly there have been in our in our history of our field. Certainly, we did do a lot of work in institutions in the seventies and eighties, and even in in Canada, uh, I suppose. But and so maybe maybe that's kind of where it stems from. But I'm curious, sort of how how you got to work as a behavior analyst in this place. Yeah. So so um, Cambridge is a is a interesting place, and and it has its own history. It, it was originally called the Ontario Lunatic Asylum, and I, uh, I think I think it opened in 1856, and it was wow. probably a pretty terrifying place, you know, back, back then. <laughs> um, you know, and and there's a lot of great uh, historical uh, documents and kind of artifacts that that the organization actually shares, and uh, there's a number of places within the hospital where you can go and kind of look at, you know, like the the uh, the wall uh, you know around the facility and you know uh, they used to have like the old tower spire still and so I, I've always been really interested in kind of history of of uh, psychiatry and, and mm-hmm, those things mm-hmm. and, but so so CAMH is, as it's called now Center for Addiction and Mental Health has gone through many iterations over you know uh, you know over a hundred years and um, yeah you're absolutely right during the during uh, uh, you know, the 70s, 80s, etc., um, they did have uh, behavioral folks, right? They, mm. they had behavioral-oriented uh, psychologists, mm. and, uh, you know, they probably had uh, psychiatrists and others who, you know, were aware to some level of, you know, behavioral procedures. And, you know, I wouldn't call them, you know, applied behavior analysis, or they wouldn't look at anything like function-based interventions or anything mm-hmm. like that. They were probably mm-hmm. default strategies. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, so, so there, there were behavior practitioners throughout kind of CAMH's uh, history, and uh, even in the in the eighties and uh, the nineties, they had behavior therapists on um, the dual diagnosis unit. And uh, you know, I, I was able to you know dig up some of the old reports of of uh, the behavior you know therapist or whatever their, their mm. role was called, uh, and just read through them with fascination on the you know the kind of work that they were doing um, at the time. Hmm. So, so there's always there's always been a bit of a hold in the the developmental disability program of behavior therapists, and so when hmm. I started there, uh, there were already three behavior therapists working on the unit um, and doing outpatient work as well, and they had been there um, for for a number of years. That, uh, th- as I said before, it was really this uh, a fairly secure inpatient unit, um, hmm. and then it had a, a section. Um, at the back of the unit, that was even more secure. You know, we called it was called the uh, intensive observation treatment area, or IOTA, and uh, that's where the the beginning of the the, the PICA case kind of took place. Um, so we we were one of the few places, I think, um, you know, in Ontario. With you know, there are a couple other institutions like Waypoint and others that that can support individuals with with extreme complex needs or with severe challenging behavior, right? Really severe self injury, really severe physical aggression. And other other complexities that put a person's life at risk, and so so um, yeah, we, we we saw a lot of uh, patients through there uh, with very different profiles. Nobody 
nobody, no two similar people really ever came through those doors, uh, mm. to be honest. But the, the interesting part now is that uh, the, the discipline has grown considerably, uh, which we're obviously very happy about. I think there's something like 21 behavior analysts working across um, 23 uh, clinical programs. It's maybe not the exact number today because there's always mm-hmm. this kind of fluctuations, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but it, was, it was around that the last time I checked. So, and, and the really cool part is, is that there's behavior therapists working across a, a number of different programs now, like within the schizophrenia program and within the, um, the kind of the ACT model outpatient programs for people with severe mental illness and many within the, the, the uh, forensic mental health um, system. And I actually have to give a, a shout out to my wife. Uh, I, I believe she was the first forensic behavior analyst, <laughs> you know, in, in Ontario. She, it, the way it started is um, because there was only behavior therapist on dual diagnosis program, uh, whenever one of the other units would get somebody with like really severe aggression or, you know, that was like ingesting items or that was, you know, self-injuring uh, the behavior therapist on the dual diagnosis program would get a call and say, hey, can you come look at this uh, with us and just mm. give us your thoughts or whatever? And um, uh, my uh, my wife, uh, Lisa, was like the, one of the main people that started kind of branching out and doing these little consults. And eventually our director got mad at that because we were spending more time on other units than we were <laughs> on, on our own units <laughs> and said, we're done with these consults. Like we can't, we don't have the capacity to keep mm allowing uh, all our behavior therapists to be out in schizophrenia or forensics or wherever, um, they need to be here, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, the, the director put the kibosh on the, on the, uh, all the consoles that we were doing. And the great thing that happened is, you know, very soon after that, we saw a posting in, in uh, forensics for a behavior therapist and we're like, nice. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, Lisa took it, right? So she, she went and, uh, you know, was, was consulting to something like 10 different forensic inpatient units or something you know, silly like that because she was the only one. But she must have done a good job because, uh, you know, only after I think like a year or two, um, a bunch of the different programs that she had been consulting to now wanted their own behavior therapist mm. as well. So we started seeing more and more postings. And, uh, you know, initially it was you would get referrals because there was a guy with autism on their inpatient unit. Sure, they didn't, they right. didn't know what to, go, what to do, right? Right, um, right. But I think as the interprofessional teams were exposed to, you know, the magic of behavior analysis, you know, they saw, wow, you can like really teach skills or wow, that 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 uh, person learned to communicate their needs effectively instead of, you know, headbanging. As soon as uh, clinicians and families saw this, I think there was some motivation. And and actually, our, our biggest advocates have been uh, psychiatrists. Um, they really... Uh, love what we do and be some of our greatest partners, um, that and, and medical doctors and, and mm-hmm. uh, hosp- the hospitalists, right? They, they really like that we would use data to evaluate some of the, you know, their assessments or interventions. And so, yeah, after, after just a, a very short number of years, uh, that number just blew up. Now there's a, a behavior analyst on every forensic unit. And uh, also in the outpatient programs, I did a stint in the forensic dual diagnosis service, which is an outpatient uh, forensic service specifically for people with intellectual disabilities who have entered the forensic system. So, Mm. you know, when you discharge them, now what? You know, so we got to like keep them up. So I I did that role for um, uh, about two years, maybe three years. Mm. I really loved that job. Um, You know, had a great manager, had great, uh, great colleagues. And those colleagues are always uh, other professionals, right? They were Mm -hmm. nurses. I've had awesome relationship with nurses over the years. And 
uh, we can work so well with other professionals, right? Uh, I think sometimes behavior analysts get a, a bad rap um, because of our insularity, right? Like we can mm-hmm. set up a, a giant center and the only person you ever talk to is another behavior analyst or an RBT or, you know, BCBA or BCBAD. And then, you know, an OT enters the room and it's like, who's that? You know, it's so like, true. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we can, unfortunately, and I think we're getting better at this, to be honest, but we have a long history of being really insular and uh, maybe not appreciating the contributions or, or understanding. I, I honestly think that a lot of times it's uh, just we don't really know what other other disciplines do or we you know we don't agree with one specific procedure that they do. So we just label the whole discipline as like, you know, that's bad. The, the most common the most common um, example, I would say, is in uh, occupational therapy. Yes. Um, where, you know, I've heard so many people uh, badmouth occupational therapists. And, you know, uh, because I've had such great relationships and and really good friends with occupational therapists that work in mental health, um, you know, those are those are like fighting words for me, right? I'm like, don't talk <laughs> way about occupational therapists nice. uh, because they're so similar to us, right? Um, and I think we see something like you know, um, sensory integration and we're like, oh, you get this, you know, you get your behavior code up, you know, but occupational therapists look at functionality. They look at skills. They look at, uh, you know, generalizing to new settings. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at safety in the environment um, and they, they can apply some really creative and innovative stuff. And in the partnerships I've had where we're like, we're going to take on this project together. I've just found that so fruitful to, to partner. And uh, yeah, rec therapy is like, a very close cousin of, of behavior therapy. We're all kind of the rehabilitation, mm-hmm. you know, therapists. And I, I don't think I've met a, a rec therapist I didn't like, you know, because they have similar goals to us. They really want to improve yeah. quality of life and independence yeah. and that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the story of how, you know, behavior analysis blew up, uh, at least in, in, in our organization. And, um, you know, we're not unique. Uh, I've, I, we also saw the same thing occur across the other uh, large mental health hospitals, in Ontario. So Waypoint or Ontario Shores also have now quite a few um, behavior analysts working there and and actually behavior analysts working in leadership roles, which is like very cool uh, to see to see that. And I actually got a a, uh, a call uh, from a behavior analyst in Alberta who's just getting started on a forensic uh, inpatient program there. And I was just so happy to hear that, mm. um, that we're we're making progress uh, there. And uh um, I think there's a lot we can contribute and, uh, um, you know, I, I'm just excited to see, uh, the, the true breadth of, of behavior analysis, um, you know, taking its place, right. That we can, that we can do lots of really cool stuff when we work with others. And, uh, um, that's been my experience. A hundred percent. Yeah. We've got a, uh, a forensic psychiatric hospital out here in Vancouver that, uh, it's been around for ages, has a similar story. It goes back to the 1800s and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, uh, we've got a couple folks in our agency that do a lot of the sort of transition work uh, from the hospital, to the community, but we don't have anybody in the hospital. And I've always said to the, the sort of the one fellow who kind of does the most of transition work, it'd be so much better if you worked in the hospital and you could start making those changes and having that influence in there. I think we'd see a, just a, a huge difference in the outcomes. Um, uh, and because there's so many great resources uh, in there too, right? In these hospitals, as you, as you well know, uh, that, that, you know, that, that folks are kind of missing out on, especially right now during COVID when uh, a lot of these folks aren't allowed to go outside, uh, you know, consulting has become quite difficult for us. So yeah, definitely envious of uh, Ontario and Alberta. Nice to see it's moving west. Maybe it'll get to us soon and 
we can get some folks into that hospital too. That'd be awesome. So let's let's uh, this this has been an awesome chat. And I can we can easily tangent and just totally skip the article. I think, <laughs> but, but uh, forty minutes in, we should probably start talking about the article a little bit. Uh, and so I'm just going to uh, kind of read the title again. I'll have all this stuff in show notes, of course. But uh, I, I believe this was this published in 2017 or 2018, maybe. 2018. 2018 and advances in neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, and it's called the treatment of life-threatening pica with five-year follow-up. So maybe before we kind of get into sort of uh, the article and um, the whole sort of process there, just for folks that are listening, uh, I've I've, def- I've talked to folks that don't even know what pica is. So maybe you could just give us a little overview of what pica is all about. Sure. So so uh, pica is really the you know, ingestion of non-nutritive substances. That's kind of like the the textbook, mm. uh, the textbook definition. And I think actually in the in in the DSM five, you have to do it for at least a month. It has to be developmentally inappropriate. So don't worry if your three year old is eating a bunch of crayons. Um, mm. That's not necessarily a big problem yet. Not culturally sanctioned. So there are cultures that that have um, ceremony or practices where you know the ingestion of of clay or things like that. Would would be okay. Uh, would would not be considered pica, and then severe enough to warrant clinical investigation. So um, there are forms of pica, like you know, for example, you could say that chewing ice cubes, <laughs> you know, could be you know, uh, an ingestion of a non nutritive substance or something. Right. right? But right. but you know, again, you make the decision, as is the case with any quote unquote disorder is the impact it has on your life. You know, is it is it threatening your health? Is it um, obstructing your social relationships or your ability to fully participate in your community and things like that? So, uh, yeah, that's that. that But that's kind of like the quick, uh, quick and dirty of a definition of pica. It's been called the uh, I know uh, Fox called it the most dangerous form of self-injury. And actually the most people out of any form of, of uh, challenging behavior, most people die uh, from pica. It's got a ton of really negative and nasty um, social and biomedical consequences. Obviously, if you are, you know, running and grabbing cigarette butts or stones and things off the street and, and doing that and people have to block you and, and you know, stop you, this is going to limit your ability to participate effectively in your community, right? So it really uh, contributes to segregation or exposure to restrictive practices like restraint or seclusion or, you know, what have you, or protective devices or uh, whatever. And then medically, you know, there's obvious, you know, choking risk, uh, mm-hmm. for, depending on mm-hmm. what you're ingesting. Um, but then there's things that maybe we don't think about like things like parasitic infection or um, poisoning. Hmm. We know hmm. we know that uh, there's been a long history of lead poisoning for things like eating paint chips or other things like that. Intestinal blockage is a common outcome for people who engage in pica, and that and that can be fatal, right? So um, some people require emergency surgeries, and uh, and even you know, unfortunately, uh, lots of people die. So um, hmm. it is it is something that uh, I think. It isn't overlooked. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of research on pica, but I don't know that it's looked at as um, as potentially threatening as as it really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, let's let's start talking about this fella. How'd you how'd you find him and and uh, and kind of what led to to this sure. study? Yeah. So so um, one of my colleagues that's. Uh, co-author on this um, was supporting this uh, young man in the, in the community, and um, 
things were escalating. So he he had engaged in um, lifelong pica and aggression. So the, the, the family described it as like, since he could walk around, he was walking around and like grabbing stuff, putting in his mouth and mm. swallowing it, right? Um, and he was, you know, uh, aggressive kind of since that time, but he was small and it was manageable. And anytime he tried to grab something that he shouldn't eat, we could, you know, take it out of his hand, take it away. Um, but he grew, right? So he, you know, he got bigger, he got stronger, he got really strong, actually, and very flexible, uh, you know, like <laughs> double jointed, like the whole, like he would be a yoga star because, wow. uh, you know, he could move um, in really impressive ways. Um, so this added a lot of complications um, as he was a teenager and, and then a young adult. But it got to the point where I think around his like 18th birthday, if I'm remembering correctly, that that uh, things started to escalate rapidly hmm. in terms of the aggression. So he started really injuring people, injuring family members or injuring staff. Um, and he also started to have a preference for more uh, dangerous items. So before where he might, you know, pick up a cigarette, cigarette butt or like a, a small, you know, piece of you know garbage or whatever. Now he's picking up like a key and swallowing that or a rock or like a, you know, a nail or, Oof. you know, he, he ingested a, a, um, a garbage bag, you know, like, so this is like, oh. whoa, like these are, it got to a point where the family was like really in crisis and, and looking for support. And so he, uh, we were aware of him through different kind of community uh, partners and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there, I think there was even maybe a referral for outpatient support at that time. But it all kind of culminated in, um, you know, a series of events over a number of days where he had uh, injured a caregiver uh, more severely, requiring like hospitalization. And all of these acts of aggression were in the context of engaging in pica. Right? Mm. So he was trying to get an item. The, the, uh, the caregiver was trying to block or stop or get that right, thing from, from right, him. And right. then the aggression the aggression started. So it wasn't just like, you know, random run up to you and, and hurt you aggression. It was usually right. someone's trying to take something away from me. And so so there was this, this injury, which was very concerning. And then he had managed to ingest um, five like latex medical gloves. And so uh, as you might imagine, this is like not good. <laughs> And uh, he actually, like other people, you know, that we've seen in the literature, got an intestinal blockage and required emergency surgery because uh, he also was non, um, non-vocally verbal, mm. uh, right? So he couldn't communicate with words, at least, what was happening or that he was right, experiencing right, pain right. or whatever. So they only kind of caught it at the point where he, like, collapsed, right? So it was emergency that this had, had occurred. And, uh, so he went in for... for uh, emergency surgery and and it was a um you know an enterectomy which is actually a removal of a large part of his uh, intestines um so very serious and uh unfortunately he had in recovery he had a um uh seizure and did all kinds of damage to the to the wound and you know oh. reop- reopen things and oh. and it, it was serious to the point where the the surgeon said if he eats stuff like this again he's going to die. Right. And so this is where the referral comes to my, to my, to my desk. And this is like the, you know, the referral you never want to get on your desk. No. A doctor saying like, if this behavior happens again, he's going to die. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, yeah. no pressure. And, um, you know, the family were, were great. And, um, their, their, uh, 
you know, their love for their son and, and the dedication to his care is like, like no other. And, and, uh, they really want to support him. And, and they actually, you know, just so everybody knows they've, they've given consent to talking about his case, uh, and obviously for doing the, the research study, but also for, for sharing it in educational contexts like this. Oh, amazing. Uh, so, yeah. So whether it's a presentation or, you know, this podcast, uh, they're very open. They, the way they put it is they want other people to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, from this experience so maybe you know for for other families that are, are experiencing uh, something similar that they you know maybe they have uh, some solutions um so this is how this referral comes to me and uh you know i i had assessed and treated pica on uh, on a, on a number of occasions before that and had had many cases with really severe aggression so you know it's kind of no stranger to the to the um topography of behaviors mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, the intensity of this one and how how uh, you know how high risk it was was kind of a new level. But luckily, I had some really great you know colleagues um, uh, involved, uh, and those are all the co- co-authors on this paper, um, and so with with lots of experience. And so, uh, so we we really worked together and supported one another. Um, and there was also a lot of really great support from the other clinicians. As I said before, we were an interprofessional team, so you know I had there was. Uh, you know, OT, there was nursing, there was uh, psychiatry, there was the, the hospitalists, the medical doctors, um, there was bioethicists, dietitian, you know, so we had, we had like a dream team of folks to, to look at this problem and to, awesome. and to create some formulation. But uh, not a lot of the other kind of interventions had, had worked, right? So people had tried um, antipsychotic medication for the aggression mm-hmm. and maybe in the hopes that maybe it would slow him down he wouldn't engage a pike as much uh, they tried ssris they tried um you know different um different medical interventions even um vitamin supplementation he did have uh, an iron deficiency which is quite common in the pica literature but they treated it and it didn't change the frequency mm. of pica at all so we were kind of hoping like oh he's you know when we found out he has an iron deficiency we were excited we're like oh great this is like that uh, Toyer article where they gave the multivitamin basically the pica, you know, uh, went down. But you know, no luck, no such luck for us. So you know, they treated that. His iron levels improved, but the pica and aggression persisted. So yeah, this is a young man with um, a severe uh, intellectual disability um, and uh, autism spectrum disorder uh, diagnoses. He also had seizure disorder. Um, he had. Uh, you know, a number of uh, medical issues uh, like epilepsy, obviously. And uh, um, he also engaged in restricted repetitive behaviors. And there's, uh, you know, Rosales has that famous article, you know, about uh, restricted repetitive or, you know, the maintenance of sameness and that. So like some uh, other individuals with living with neurodevelopmental disabilities, um, he was really into the arranging and ordering, right? Like Mm. uh, picking up things and straightening them or cleaning. And if an item didn't belong, you know, throw it away, you know, chuck it behind the, the stove or hide it somewhere, you know, so the keys, you know, dad's keys or whatever, like all these things were constantly being like, you know, moved around the environment and, and made perfect. But, uh, so that, that was, uh, kind of the reason for referral was, you know, increase in the frequency and the, and the preference for more dangerous items, um, increase in aggressive behavior, even the restricted repetitive behaviors posed a risk. Like he was throwing things behind the oven and at first it was just like small things, right? So if you, if you left a, you know, a cup on the table, he didn't want anything on the table. You 
take that and chuck it behind the oven. Mm. Um, but I guess it got to the point where he was throwing bigger things back there. Like he would throw like a blanket back there and then like other things. And it, it actually started a fire, a oh fairly serious fire in the house uh, on one occasion. So even this, like it was just like this perfect storm of like all these different things yeah. um, that did that. So um, as soon as he was recovered, they kept him in ho- like medical hospital um, until he was like well healed, you know, and that was, I'm sure, very challenging. Um, but, uh, immediately after that, they transferred him like directly to our inpatient unit and we put him, you know, in this, um, intensive observation treatment area, which is a very secure, you know, heat, heat sealed walls, um, heavy, you know, uh, heavy tear proof furniture. Mm. Um, it's, it's supposed to be pike proof. <laughs> it's supposed to yeah, be, yeah, yeah. it's supposed to be, you know, destruction proof too. But, uh, incredibly, uh, he could engage in pica uh, multiple times a day, even, you know, with two to one staffing in this environment with a protective helmet on, he was what? finding stuff and managed to eat it regularly. So this, this is one of the lessons I learned in this case was, you know, when people recommend extinction, mm-hmm. procedural extinction, I, I shake my head now because I'm like, it's impossible, you know, to to extinguish, truly extinguish a behavior that has that is being socially reinforced or or automatically reinforced in the real world mm-hmm. is going to be extremely hard. Mm-hmm. Right. You can. And, and I'm not saying you can't reduce the value of reinforcement you absolutely can you can delay it you can make it you know less intense you can you know uh lower the magnitude of it etc you can do lots of stuff in differential reinforcement not necessarily using extinction but um the fact that with all that we did like you know hourly checks and stuff and then he would like reach into the vent and for whatever reason there'd be like a piece of foam in there and and he would ingest it and you know even on one occasion where i was responsible um, I went in, did the did the check, searched him, searched everything. You know, I was like, okay, we're clear. And I had my little checklist. And as soon as I walked out the door, he took off his shoe, pulled out this the rubber sole, and ingested it. And it was like a wow. large. You know. I think we were actually able to get that out of his mouth <laughs> but before he before he swallowed it. But uh, but like that's that's what I mean when, right. when I talk about you know the procedural extinction um, being very challenging in in any situation. Like you know, if I can't do it with you know two nurses a security guard or a restrictive environment like this and a, and, a, and a protective helmet, if I can't extinguish a very discreet behavior like pica, you know, how are we extinguishing, you know, the kids screaming on the bus? Like totally. it ain't going to happen. Right. Totally. So um, that's one of the things I learned, but uh, yeah, long story short, that was kind of how he uh, got there. And obviously the first thing we wanted to do was um, identify any potential medical challenges, right? So the iron deficiency thing, make sure his epilepsy was stabilized making sure that post-surgery wound care stuff was taken care of, gastrointestinal evaluation, dental assessment, genetic testing, everything. Like he got like the full nine yards. And every time we kind of hoped like, you know, maybe there's, you know, the answer in some of this uh, medical stuff. And uh, it never came, right? There was never a good medical or psychiatric solution to the aggression or the pica. Um, So we went the route of, uh, you know, behavior analysis after that. The second secret word is hospital. And I mean, I don't know if your intention was to write a study in the beginning, but it's nice sort of from a research perspective that you got to kind of go through all the medical stuff first without any behavioral interventions. Yeah. And, and you know, the intention was not to do, to do a study really at, at all uh, at, at the time. It was really just uh, we had set up the system and we'd actually a number of the, uh, the behavior analysts had gotten together and, and kind of written a clinical pathway of like, here's what we need to do when we get these cases of very severe behavior um, is, you know, 
first step, let's mm-hmm. uh, look at any kind of medical, genetic, or mm-hmm. uh, biomedical issues. And, um, and you know, and I, and I think that was good practice because a lot of times we did catch and treat stuff that had drastic impact on challenging behavior. Like, you know, you have an impact tooth or you have an infection or you have, you know, UTIs are very common, you know, in, in contributing to, you know, whether they're functioning as a motivating operation or, or like who knows, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, or making demands more aversive, you know, if you have a really horrible migraine and someone's bossing you around, you know, that it's not going to go over well. But, but yeah, we had, uh, we, it was, like I said, it was, it was a great team and a great service mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Hmm. Okay, so moving on. Yeah, so we so we uh, obviously the first thing we wanted to do was do an assessment of, um, of both pica uh, and aggression, and so the the aggression FA is not in this uh, article because you know you, you have word limits and, and all that, and we're like, oh, do we get into all all that? But mm-hmm. I, I think it, it, it's fairly important. Um, so we did uh, we did direct and indirect descriptive assessment measures like right away. So as soon as we could talk to mom and dad or the other people that had been working with him, you know, we did our FAI and we did, um, you know, we did some of the indirect tools. Um, then we observed, you know, uh, we observed him kind of in the environment. And then we designed a modified functional analysis um, drawing from um, obviously Iwata, you know, 1994 mm-hmm. uh, with, with some tweaks. And then we also applied the uh, baited environment strategy that Piazza et al. in, in 1998 had used. And this is basically, you know, um, setting up the environment for a functional analysis with pike items purposefully placed. And uh, so you can mm. measure them. So, so there, there's been a number of studies that try to be creative about this because, you know, the, the, the concern is, well, you're going to have the person engage in pica. Like, that's not, that's <laughs> not good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and other people have done different things. Like, they've made things out of, like, spaghetti, like raw spaghetti mm. <laughs> or, uh, you know, one, one um, study used um, um, bread dough to make, like, fake cigarettes. Like, they shaped them into – that was uh, Donnelly, 1990. They made cigarettes, right? But they were bread, right? So it's like, you know, there's there's been other articles that have criticized this approach saying – well, that's not, you're not assessing pica, you're assessing the guy eating bread, mm-hmm. right? Even though it looks like a cigarette. So, you know, I, and I'm not here nor there on that argument. I think it's kind of getting into the, the weeds a bit, but, mm-hmm. um, but we, we wanted to, we, we started to consider what could we use? Are we going to try to like do like a bread type thing or, you know, what can look like a pica item, but be safe. Um, and as I said, we had, you know, Luckily, we had a dietitian and a bioassist. We had nurses. We had medical doctors. So during the, the rounds, I basically said, look, we got this problem. Um, we want to do this assessment, but we want to make sure that it's safe. But we want to make sure that we're actually measuring pica. So any suggestions? And one of the things I learned that day was that you can eat about two rolls of um, you know non-treated toilet paper, right? So you want to get oh. like the, the safe, like, you know non uh, non dyed colored you know it's kind of like the brown gotcha yeah know, the boring brands unbleached yeah 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 so you can eat apparently a couple of rolls of that i wouldn't suggest obviously that anyone goes and does that <laughs> um but uh fairly safely and this was mm. you know the dietitian and the and the, the medical professionals um and oh, also muffin muffin wrapper i never oh. would have thought of that but you know obviously when you're eating a muffin and you accidentally let's say you accidentally take a big bite out of the the wax wrapper yeah. you're probably not going to die because it's you know, it's designed to be fairly harmless and it just yeah, passes yeah, through yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And, you know. So, so those two items were um, non-nutritive uh, things that we could use in very small quantities. We're not mm-hmm. given like a roll of toilet paper for pipe. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're taking like a little piece and folding it into like sure. a little square and sure, using sure. that. So we baited the environment with those. And then we set up the, the uh, conditions of a multi-element 
functional analysis. And so it was it was brief. Uh, so we used five minute sessions. Um, you know, we use a bunch of these, um, you know, Hanley modifications to uh, to make your your uh, functional analysis uh, kind of more suitable to the, mm. to the environment. And so we did a multi-element with control alone, attention, and demand, like like many others, and just to get an idea of what was going on with the pica. And you know, no one was blown away by the results that uh, it was largely undifferentiated pattern, right? So it was kind of like all over the place. And if you look at the graph in the article, it's just kind of this like this blob of <laughs> of the different conditions. And then just to be sure, um, you know, we we stole this idea from uh, Vollmer. Blanking on the year, it might be 1995 or 1998 of mm. the repeated uh, alone conditions, right? So, so Vollmer had done the, the, these studies to assess automatically reinforced behavior, and then you know had just done uh, repeated sessions of alones, and you know with the theory being that if the person continues to engage in in the behavior in repeated alone conditions at a fairly stable rate, you can be fairly confident, you know, when compared to your controls that there's the behavior is automatically reinforced or is not um, socially mediated. So I think every other PICA article I've like ever read <laughs> had the same results, right? Like automatic, you know, you mm-hmm. don't, you don't get a ton of PICA that's like attention or escape maintained. I'm sure it has happened. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, these, this is a fairly common. And so we also want to do this functional analysis of aggression. And so we ran the exact same, kind of set up, right? A functional analysis um, where we had the control and then we had the attention and, and kind of the classic approach of, you know, we're withdrawing attention or we're waiting for the target behavior to occur. We're responding with, you know, social interaction or, you know, uh, uh, some kind of social response. Um, and then, you know, flipping back between uh, control and then another test and on and on. And so in the, um, in the, functional analysis of aggression, we actually saw the highest rate of responding in the demand condition. This was like a, one of those like pretty Iwata graphs that you never mm-hmm. see in, right. you never see in real life, right? Where yeah. it's like a demand's up here, there's a little tangible bump and then the control is like flat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were really happy to see that because you, again, you rarely see like, you know, these really nice um, FAs results. Usually they're fairly, you know, you have to kind of investigate a bit further to determine the, the differences between conditions. So we basically got, at this point, we've got automatically maintained pica, and we've got mostly escape-maintained aggression with also tangible. And so so that makes a lot of sense where it's like, you know, based on the anecdotal reports and the indirect assessment, it was like, if you try to stop pica, he's going to clobber you, yeah. right? And so the FA basically said that, like, if you're giving mm-hmm. me demands or you're trying to stop tangibles from happening, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. aggression. And the aggression was quite severe. Like, it was it was uh, kind of episodic where, you know, as soon as he started, he usually was choking. Like, he would get an arm around your neck and it was kind of like a UFC hold kind of thing. Also pinching and some other small things, but the choking was really concerning. And as I said before, uh, because of his flexibility and strength, like, he really, really could hurt you. And, and uh you know, having been on the receiving end of that in the functional analysis on a number of occasions, it wasn't a good time at all. Right? Like <laughs> he was, it was very hard. You know, I was really worried a couple of times and I had to have people had to kind of like run and help me. And uh, um, so, you know, we can imagine what, you know, the family was trying to manage or that, you know, community workers mm-hmm. were trying to manage in the community. It's like, wow, this is like very intense. So after that, you know, you know, now we're back to the kind of drawing board. Okay, we have automatically maintained uh, PICA. So now what? And, you know, the, the challenge is that a lot of the literature um, is basically recommends things like response blocking, right? Or, you know, or something that involves me 
touching the person. <laughs> um, and like our FA said, you touch this guy when the pike is going to happen, it's going to be intense physical aggression. And it's like not manageable in any setting. You know, we could we could try to manage in this really controlled setting with all these resources. But even then, it was like, you know, we, we had a lot of concerns. So what do you do, right? You have this automatically reinforced behavior with this aggression that basically nullifies a good 80% of the research literature, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and that that's, you know, pretty common. Like, you know, the research literature is like, you know, Fox and Martin overcorrection, you know, um, use of contingent restraints and, you know, in the, in the 70s, applying protective equipment as a consequence, right? So, you, you, you know, or um, blocking is a very common one, response blocking or some response effort intervention where you're going to like grab their hand and make it really hard for them to do it. But, you know, maybe you'll still allow it, but it's really hard. So all of these great studies that are like, you know, they're they're for, for their time were were great, and I'm sure they helped a lot of people. Were not realistic in this context, um, just because of the collateral uh, behavior that would occur. So um, we decided to again go with Vollmer and with um, uh, LeBlanc and Piazza and Hanley and Fisher, all these people that say, you know, when in doubt, you know, go to your preference assessments and mm. and, uh, and look at the stimulus that are competing that may compete with the challenging behavior. So we we were already at this point thinking, okay, we're probably going to try some kind of a differential something, right? Because this is automatic. Literature is, you know, there's lots of that in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ran a number of preference assessments. We ran a paired stimulus preference assessment to look at edibles that might compete with pica. Because there's lots of, there are a number of studies where they use like, you know, an item exchange, right? Or a um, an alternative edible, right? So, you know, instead of eating the pica item here, have this pizza and then, you know. So we were like, let's see if there's anything out there. And so we got a list from the family of all these different things that he really loves. And, um, you know, and then threw those into a paired stimulus preference assessment. And we also included, I'm glad we did this now. Um, we also included the toilet paper and the muffin wrapper ah. into, the, into the, the stimulus preference assessment. Interesting. And, you know, lo and behold, the two highest things that he picked in the paired stimulus preference assessment are toilet paper and muffin wrapper. And wow. so we're like, we're like, no, like what the, what the <laughs> heck? Why is he... Why is he choosing those? And I, yeah. I do have a, I do have a hypothesis that maybe if we have time at the end, I can come yeah. back to. But so right away we're like, oh no! Now all, not only all our response blocking is gone, but all of our item exchange and all of our competing edible stimulus, like those are like potentially off the table because mm-hmm. the pike items are the favorite thing, right? Um, we also did a single stimulus preference assessment, um, which uh, uh, you know basically presenting the items one one at a time, mm. and then uh, measuring some dimension of behavior. Usually it's like, you know, duration of engagement, and you define engagement, you know, uh, I've heard active approach, right? And so I'm, are you looking at it? Are you reaching for it? Are you touching it? Are you manipulating it? And we'll just have a timer, you know, and when you're doing that, we'll press the timer on, and when mm-hmm. you just walk away or whatever, when your eye gaze goes away, you will stop. And so we basically just have a hierarchy then of all the things that he interacted with the longest. And we made an assumption that those could be potential reinforcers, right? So bubbles, xylophones, you know, a, hand, a massager, you know, things like that were, were fairly, fairly high. And then so so now we're at this point where we have these preference assessments done. We've got um, two functional analyses done. We think we kind of understand, you know, sort of uh, both behaviors. You know, when I say sort of, it's because automatic is like the garbage can of behavior analysis as far as <laughs> functional analysis goes, right? It's it, really, when you think about it, what that means, it's like something else is going on that doesn't involve people. And it's like, well, what do you mean? What is that? Like, wh- that could be a million things, right? Yeah. Is that 
is this like a neurological thing? Is this like a, you know, am I, am I shooting hoops and just having a good time watching mm-hmm. the basket go in? Like what does automatic mean? So it's, it's not a very helpful category, but no. basically what it's, what it's communicating is, you know, people don't need to really be there um, for it. Right. So, but it can be, you know, it could be, you know, pain attenuation. It could be, you know, um, to promote some kind of sensory um, uh, experience, you know, and, and the list is endless of the kind of things that could be. So we decided then to just like throw everything at the wall. And this is clinical work, right? This wasn't like, you know, we're going to do this like really sophisticated research, you know, design. Mm-hmm. It was like, let's start trying stuff to stop this really dangerous behavior. So we thought, okay, the safest thing to start with, we kind of went from like, you know, safest to maybe, you know, the ones that were more intrusive. So we started with non-contingent access to edibles, you know, and mm-hmm. we'd hope maybe that would do something, you know, so he'd enter the environment. We, same thing. It was basically the same as the FA control where he'd enter this intensive observation tra- treatment area, which was like a 12 by 12, you know, pretty secure, fairly barren area. It had a couch and TV and other things, but, you know, all, you know, sealed with plexiglass and all that. So he would walk into the environment and then our baited items would be throughout. So little pieces of muffin wrapper, toilet paper would be placed throughout the environment. But in this first treatment condition, there was um, edibles that he liked, right? So that were on that preference assessment. So we thought, okay, well, let's see if maybe he will delay, you know, maybe he will, you know, eat the these things first, or maybe he won't, after he eats these, he won't want to eat the pike items. And it basically did uh, nothing, <laughs> right? He, uh, he immediately went for the pike items, which is exactly what we saw in the preference assessment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He would, he would then go over and eat the, you know, the bowl of, of uh, orange slices or whatever. Um, but it did not have an impact on the frequency of pica uh, mm. at all, uh, the frequency of ingestion of non-edible items at all. So back to the drawing board, uh, he had come with a helmet, like lots mm. of people with, uh, you know, some different challenging behaviors that might put them at risk, like whether it's pica or, um, you know, severe headbanging, for example, people mm-hmm. sometimes have customized helmets. Um, he came with one of those, but we had observed him on a number of occasions and, and they had observed this in the community also being able to like grab an item and lift up the bottom of the, of the mask with a lot of effort. Like it wasn't yeah, easy, yeah, but yeah. He, and then shove his fingers in there and eat the item. Wow. <laughs> right? And the whole time, if you were trying to stop him, he would be like swinging at you. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So he was still able to eat a lot of non-edible items, even with his helmet. So we were like, well, this helmet's not really a response block or extinction, let's say. It's just harder, right? He can still do it. It's just tougher. So we said, okay, well, let's let's see how effective that is because it's been the primary intervention used you know, for the last number of months. Let's just measure the impact of this. Does it reduce the, the, the latency? Does it reduce the frequency at all? Does it do anything? And it did nothing. It, mm. it actually, he actually responded faster wearing the helmet than he did during baseline. Wow. Not wearing a helmet, right? Which we were we were surprised by. But then I actually stumbled on a um, a Mace article where he described the same phenomenon that actually having the protective device promoted uh, lower freq- uh, latencies of the challenging behavior. You know, and I just thought that was fascinating. I'm like, what? I wonder that's like a contrast effect or something. Who knows? But mm-hmm. so even with the helmet on, he's going for it really fast. So back to the drawing board again, and. Um, we were able to get the helmet modified by a facility here, a hospital actually that uh, that does a lot of kind of cool, you know, occupational therapy and protective device stuff. And they modified the helmet by adding kind of like a chin strap, a piece oh. of foam, and then um, you know adjustable side straps, so that now he's got this big piece of foam under 
Um, so if he tries to get anything under there, it's like not going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it was quite effective. Like he could not get anything in there. So we ran a couple of sessions of just let's see with the pike items in the environment. Same thing like the control condition. You walk in, there's like 15 baited items throughout the environment. What happens? He didn't eat anything, mm-hmm. obviously, because he couldn't. You know, it was, he was trying and you know, whatever. So we had zero percent, but we saw a lot of collateral behavior, meaning, you know, he was really upset. You know, he was vocalizing loudly. He was, you know, kind of increased psychomotor agitation. Like he was kind of running back and forth. Um, so we were like, this is, and this is, you know, this is um, what Skinner called the abula, right? The the emotional response that that accompanies extinction, right? Mm. It's like when you're, when you put your money in the, in the vending machine and nothing's happening and you start freaking out and kicking it and punching it. That's, that's that, that uh, kind of emotional responding or the, the, the burst, right? So that happened. Um, so we were like, that's not a feasible intervention for anywhere. Like we can't send him back to the community with just this really restrictive helmet. And then he's, you know, choking people out because he's, you know, out of response. So, so then we decided, well, let's try, maybe if we give him an option while he's wearing this helmet for, a, for an alternative behavior to, to, um, you know, that would gain reinforcement of some kind, you know, and we'll, of course, because it's automatic, maybe we'll incorporate some, some, uh, you know, sensory based, reinforcers right like the massage yep. and things yep. like that maybe we'll compete in some way we're really you know it was a bit of a grasping at straws of what could work the third secret word is collaboration so the first differential reinforcement session we ran was just you know uh there was a receptacle in the environment it was just one of those big shredder bins that everyone has in their offices you know those like yep. big blue bins that you put your confidential stuff in it's like a little slit so that was perfect because you can put stuff in but you can't take it out ah yes so we prompt them we would say uh you know garbage goes in here and we'd model putting the item in the receptacle and to our like glee <laughs> the first time we told him to do that he did right he grabbed he picked it up and just put it in there yeah and then i think he was like now how do i get it out of there you know he was <laughs> like, you know and uh and so that only lasted two sessions where he cooperated. And then he immediately went back to trying to force items into the helmet um, mm. and to, and, you know, becoming agitated when he couldn't do that. Um, so that the DRI one, we called it with just mm. praise fell apart pretty rapidly. And then finally we went to this um, DRA uh, or DRI with a discard response with assorted sensory reinforcers or what we, what we thought could be reinforcers mm-hmm. where we were entering the environment with the baited items prompting the discard and as soon as he did it we were applying you know like the xylophone the, mm. you know, the, the hand massage we had this head massager thing and you know, all, all these different kind of sensory activities that during that single stimulus preference assessment we identified that he he would engage with those things for an extended period of time so we started applying those and very rapidly we saw uh you know a drastic drop in the frequency of of items ingested or even attempts to ingest Mm. and a drastic increase in discard responses so we went from like zero at baseline to you know 100 percent, and we were like you know thrilled with this uh so we just repeated that process you know we did multiple sessions multiple over and over again of like discard reinforce discard reinforce discard reinforce went back to baseline and then back to to the treatment again and Part of the part of the baseline thing was um, because, as I said, this is kind of clinical investigation in nature. Part of the reversals were also to investigate the impact of any other phenomena or, or variables that might be going on, like the medications he was on, or you know, we wanted to know like, is this what's changing it, or is it 
these meds or is it, mm. you know, that he's just doesn't have a stomachache today or, you know, so we always decided to go back to baseline just to, to really solidify that our intervention was what was making the difference. Cause pretty intrusive, right? You got this helmet mm-hmm. on, you got mm-hmm. someone, you're following the guy around with this, this shredder bin. Like if this isn't doing it, we don't want to be exposing him to this treatment. Sure. And then, uh, it was really successful over something like, you know, um, 12 sessions or something like that. If I, you know, if I'm remembering the monstrous graph in that. that (laughs) Um, And so after we had repeated success, we started thinking about, okay, the whole point of coming to this unit is that he will get some kind of treatment and then be able to leave. Right. So that Mm -hmm. he can't live, he can't live here forever. It's not a permanent place. It's supposed to be, it was supposed to be a brief assessment intervention unit. Right. So we, from the beginning, we were thinking about generalization and um, we knew that we wanted to, do this in multiple environments. We had to get out of that IOTA area and we need to get on the general unit. We need to get outside. We need to like mm-hmm. get, you know, in a car. We need to like get all over the place and do this in different places. We need to use multiple exemplars. So the discard responses uh, or the uh, receptacles need to look different. So, you know, if, if you're at the, you know, if you're at the fair and you see a garbage can, you can say, hey, use that one, you know. And the items need to be different. So we were like, you know, just using the muffin wrapper and whatever, but we need to explore at some point. He needs to be able to, throw lots of different things away, not just these items we train him on. He also needs to be able to do with other people, except for like the team that was there, like the four mm-hmm. or five people that mm-hmm. were, were doing the sessions. And uh, mom and dad need to be able to do it. So natural change agents, right? As, as a real strong generalization, like the people who he's going to be interacting with a lot and living with. So that included both mom and dad, but also the frontline professionals where he would be going. So we, these are all the different generalization and maintenance procedures we, we applied. And it was... A really cool process. Uh, one of the things that we did was we started loosening the helmet in the first maintenance or first generalization session. We just loosened it a little, mm. right? So just tiny fading of the of the restraint, right, of the helmet. Yeah. And uh, you know, so then we go into the lunch room instead of you know, and out into the general unit, and then out into the hallway of the hospital. And we so as we started to expand these things, the helmet was loosening. And I, I'll never forget that on one of the sessions. You know, he bends down to pick up one of these, you know, bait items that we had baited and the helmet falls off his head. <laughs> right. And we're all standing there like, what's going to happen? You know, like we we had kind of no idea what would what would occur next. And sure enough, he takes the muffin wrapper, walks over to the receptacle and puts it in. And, you know, it was just this this kind of moment Whoa. one of those like you know you feel like a behavior analytic superhero at that yeah, moment you're yeah, like oh yeah. my god he he did it and he didn't like that was the first time i think in like 20 years or whatever however old he was you know since he was two years old that he had picked up an item that could be ingested not having any kind of restricted device on and not ingested it right he threw it away so we were very thrilled with that and then so from then on all of the training sessions were there uh were without the helmet right we just started doing the training without the helmet and then, um, yeah, we're out in the on the hospital grounds. You know, we're picking up, you know, a, a cigarette package. We're picking up, um, you know, uh, other things like that. And he's putting them. In, oh, uh, one of the things that we faded also was, you know, it doesn't make sense to be living your life beside a giant shredder bin yeah, yeah. for the rest of your life. So um, I got a, a small toolbox uh, that yep. had like that you could lock and just drilled out a hole on the top of it, like to make it like a mini shredder bin, right? Gotcha. Um, And so he would carry, He we we basically taught him to carry the toolbox and same function, he could pick things up, he could put them in and then they couldn't come out, right? We kind of, I kind of just built it so there's a little slope inside where it was kind of hard to, like a vending machine, right? You can't get your hand back in there. 
So he started using that. And so either him or dad or the staff would carry that little toolbox around. And, and it's just a guy walking down the street with no helmet and a toolbox. You know, it's nothing, yeah. you know, not socially ostracizing. And then we started fading, right? We're going to get out of the restrictive environment. We're going to loosen those protective devices. We're going to lower our supervision levels so the first few times yeah. better better believe it the first few times we went outside it was like two security two nurses mom and dad two other you know it was like an entourage because we're like if anything goes down it's like yeah potentially fatal right yeah um, we started increasing the proximity from him so when we were out for walks we would stay like three feet away and then four feet and five feet we just had this we had criteria right where we were like okay three you know three successful you know sessions at this level you know of proximity and then we'll increased by half a foot or whatever. Right. Or so we did that. And, uh, uh, we saw, we saw quite a bit of, uh, success there. And then one of the things that, that I think, um, we're all most proud of is that we had the capability to follow him, uh, into the community. So, uh, when he was discharged, we got to check in with him fairly regularly mm. and actually assess the PICA on an ongoing basis. Right. So over the span of the next five years, uh, we were in contact with his with the organization uh, he had been discharged to. He was, you know, discharged to a group home, and we're able to, you know, do these little maintenance probes, right? And so over a five year period, wow. we we continued to see these gains and uh, or this 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 zero level of behavior. Which my understanding is the first time that's ever been done in any PICA study um, that that anyone has ever done that extensive of follow-up i think so yeah and so so that kind of became the basis of the paper was one the the two important things i think that we um, showed kind of like a systematic reduction of the of restrictive procedures used in pica and we had this really great follow-up data and i was uh, pretty happy with that so so that was kind of the uh the, you know that's kind of the whole story and, you know obviously if you want the 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 nerdy details you gotta you gotta read the article and, and you can actually you can actually get that on my research gate if you go there you can download it but uh, maybe I'll share the link with you uh, Ben and you can you can share that but uh, yeah that's kind of that's kind of the whole snapshot uh, of that work and uh, when I look back I'm like we were able to do some really cool things for for a lot of people and you know in no small part due to collaboration with other professionals like I said we had nurses yeah, we had yeah, dietitian yeah. we had bioassists we had doctors. And we worked together and then really uh, taking a systematic approach to the assessment and the treatment. Right. And uh, I think sometimes we lose that mm-hmm. in the work that we do. And, mm-hmm. and for obvious reasons, sometimes it's very hard to do that in uh, in a community environment. But but uh, we had we had the ability to do that. And I, and I, I think it, uh, you know, so far it helped. W- one of the important things to think about with PICA is that one instance of pica can be fatal right right so just you can't become complacent so even if we're like oh look it's been five years like it's no reason to like okay we're done here like on go on your way and like let him you know just have no supervision you gotta basically with people with long-term pica like this um you have to be vigilant in their support and their clinical Mm -hmm. assessments Mm -hmm. forever you know potentially for the rest of their lives because just that one episode could be the one right that um that cost them their lives so He's still got a really great team from from what I'm aware of, and uh, they continue to kind of support him, and uh, um, I think that's really necessary. So into the in, this is amazing. So into the five years, he's still carrying that toolbox sort of thing. So I think that actually faded uh, a bit naturally as well, where you know he found ways to you know just throw it in like a garbage, right? So yeah. <laughs> he wasn't necessarily uh, carrying the toolbox around. Yeah, and actually, and actually, he uh, started to just 
not go and pick up the items as frequently. Interesting. You know, so, you know, he would walk by like a, you know, a, like a chocolate bar wrapper that before that would be like game on. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I don't know if like, you know, it lost some of its value through over the years of the, of the discarding or, or, you know, there's, there's probably some explanation there, but, um, uh, every once in a while, like, you know, the last time I saw him, which was a number of years after, uh, you know, after this the actual assessment, uh, there was a bunch of stuff in the toolbox, <laughs> you know, staff yeah. were like, oh, he never uses that. But when I looked in there, yeah. it was like full of all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah, he, he continued to use that. One of the, one of the, the last things that we did was, um, uh, social validity, um, assessment, which, which is another thing that's missing, uh, from a lot of behavior analytic research. And, you know, these are, these are massive threats to our fields. Uh, yes. The two, two, two things. One, our, our lack of attention to social validity over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, has caused lots of problems for us, yep. uh, and and it should because that you know that shouldn't be something you overlook. And then our our long term uh, maintenance data. You know, I, I looked at um, with the help of a student, I looked at articles between in, in Jabba between 2015 and and 2017. And uh, what would you guess is the average number of days that that these articles followed up on their treatments? Oh, I don't know, like three to six months. Five point seven days. Wow. That's the average. That's the average amount of time that these studies in over these two year period, that's 86 studies followed up, uh, had had follow up maintenance probes. Oh, my gosh. You know, some some were really good. Like there were some that had 60 plus days, you know, yeah. multiple months, two, three months. Yeah. Um, and in, in my mind, before we did this, I thought, yeah, that's normal, right? Everyone yeah. does three months. Yeah. But it's really not. Most studies are not commenting at all on any wow. kind of follow up. And the ones that do are very brief, right? At yeah. post-intervention, it's like two days and that yeah. that's it, you know? So 5.7 days. And I'm hoping that since 2017 that that's improved because I think people mm-hmm. have started talking about, about this. But social validity uh, is the other big one where yeah. what are our consumers and whether, whether that's people who receive our services, either people with, you know, neurodevelopmental disabilities or mm-hmm. uh, acquired brain injuries or businesses or whoever, you know, whoever it is, what do they think of that? the treatment mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, did they like mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. it comfortable did they feel it respected their dignity yep. did it was it uncomfortable uh you know it, what do they think that it'll lead to long-term improvement like do they have that perception that this is something i could do you know is it something you'd recommend to someone you love right yeah you know is it is this a treatment that you would say yeah this is this is good and what's your overall kind of positive positive reaction to that so we we actually adapted a version of the uh, treatment evaluation inventory short form, the TEI, and just, you know, basically put PICA, you know, in, in place of the, uh, the other words that were in there. And we had really strong social validity when we, when we talked to the parents about it. Right. So they, um, they were, they were at least in support. Um, you know, one of the things to look at was, is how we could determine social, social validity from an individual like this client mm. who, you know, has a severe to profound intellectual disability, nonverbal, nonvocal verbal, you know, you know, not using spoken words to communicate, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, how do you effectively ask those questions of, you know, was this treatment okay for you? You know, mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel okay about it? Like, obviously we can look at his quality of life now. You're yep. not in a locked facility. You're not wearing a helmet all the time. You're, you know, able to, to participate in your in walks and grocery shopping and other good stuff. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're able to visit mom and dad all the time. Um, so those things are like the observable, like, you know, I, you know, I think, okay, this is social valid because look at his quality of life is from when we met is completely different, yeah. right? Not on all these sedating medications anymore. Yeah. You know, you're not 
getting emergency surgery and having your intestines removed, you know, these kind of things. But yeah, I guess just to, to top off this very long rant of mine, um, you know, I think there's a lot we can do in looking at the importance of longevity of, of our kind of interventions, communicating mm-hmm. them in effective way to mm-hmm. the public and stakeholders, and also in, in social validity. And, and uh, one of the things that, be, it, it's funny because there's a lot of criticisms being levied at behavior analysis right now. And we've, yes. you know, you've heard them, we've talked a bit about them. I won't get into that in a, in a ton of detail. That's like a whole other podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the, the part that always, for me, is really challenging, you know, I, I want to be in a position to listen and appreciate what someone is communicating, no matter what my experience is about it, right? I want to be able to say, like, you know, I hear you and, and, and I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but behavior analysis ha- can contribute so much to the reduction of abusive practices, right? Mm-hmm. Reducing restraints, reducing uh, inappropriate use of, of psychotropic medications, reducing mm-hmm. seclusion or isolation mm-hmm. to manage mm-hmm. challenging behavior, reducing, reducing, you know, the, the kinds of physical interventions where people get injured a lot, yeah. right? Or, or worse, right? Behavior yeah. analysts uh, have demonstrated many, many studies that our procedures can like, you know, reduce or get rid of those, those harmful practices that happen everywhere. Like you want to look at restrictive practices, don't look at ABA, look at the school system. Right. Look at look at hospitals. Um, sure. These things are happening around the clock to people with with mental health issues. And it's, yep. it's sometimes it's a default strategy. You know, yep. you're hitting. Boom. We're putting you in a, you know, in a in a four point restraint or you're yep. getting a you're getting an IM needle to sedate yep. you. And so so that's one of the things that makes me you know think that we need to do a better job of communicating um, mm-hmm. the kind of positive benefits we can have on yep. things like trauma and, you know, reducing trauma. But uh yeah, that was my experience, and I'm, I'm glad to have, have had the opportunity to to kind of rehash this uh, this study with you. And uh, again, I just want to give uh, a shout out to to my colleagues Val and Carabeth and, and Lanry, who were integral part of this this work. And there was lots lots of other people involved uh, that you know I, I won't, don't have time to list everybody, um, but definitely my uh, colleagues that uh, worked on this with me. Um, you know, it was fairly rapid process of the actual assessment and treatment like i think the whole thing from start to finish was 22 days i was gonna ask uh, that yeah, yeah yeah it was something like that uh but then obviously the follow-up was like years and years and years sure, right? and the yeah, work yeah. kept up but uh but uh yeah so uh appreciate the you know the um soapbox to be able to stand on for a bit there and uh, hopefully people <laughs> found it uh find it useful or entertaining and i'm always happy to to chat further that's wicked. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think uh, you, you touched on a couple of really good points right at the end there around things that are missing. And I think another piece that's really missing from a lot of studies is generalization, too. Um, and I think you guys did, did a really good job sort of on, on that piece and the, speaking about the multiple exemplars and that sort of piece. That's something I find missing a lot. I was lucky. Um, so I, I did my graduate work at uh, UBC and uh, under uh, Joe Lucician, I don't know if you know that name, but he's um, kind of well known in the uh, sort of PBS land. And uh, he did his graduate work under Rob Horner and those guys in Oregon. And uh, some of those guys were some of the, the first to do kind of some really intensive um, kind of generalization work back in the day. Uh, yeah. But the other thing that uh, Joe does quite a bit with his studies, and so you'll you'll find him his studies often under the context of family centered PBS, but they're essentially uh, you know ABA interventions in the context of kind of family routines. He often does five, ten, twenty year follow ups on his studies. 
yes. uh, which are which are quite amazing to kind of see sort of sort of that change. And and, and those are the and the, those are the, that's that sustainability of the intervention. And you're right, that's really missing from a lot of our work. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice as a field not showing because I think our interventions could work for years and years and years, but we haven't sold that. We've just sort of pitched the idea that you know we can we can change behavior really quickly and then send you home. Yeah, yeah, and you know. The fact you bring up Horner is 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 awesome, and uh, that's such a cool opportunity that you, that you had to to kind of learn from that uh, genealogy, right? Like yeah, to, yeah, exactly. To, to kind of get that uh, uh, secondary mentoring, basically from from Horner, but he is you know such a maverick of uh, cultural level behavior analysis, right? Mm-hmm. He is, he, you know, say what you will about you know PBS and people can uh, behavior analysts get in fights about this stuff till they're blue in the face at conferences, Absolutely. and yeah. you know, <laughs> but uh, but the fact is, you know. Him and his colleagues have brought, uh, you know, a, a behavior analytic and, and, and a scientific and s- systematic interventions to the masses and applied it in a way that has is, is influenced policy like no other intervention that we've ever, you know, dreamed yep. up. And so, so there's something there, right? Yep. Whether you whether you agree with how they train people or whatever, uh, all that stuff is is stuff that we can fight over the next time we can be in a conference. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the, the fact that. Uh, People are thinking that way, right? And I think about people like uh, Mark Mattiani, right? Mm. Um, and these thinkers that think about behavior analysis as more than um, a procedure for a mm-hmm. specific for a specific diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, they think about it as the application of principles and an understanding of why people and why organisms do what they do. And 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 the most important. And, and I think really beautiful and artistic piece of this is um, the focus on the how we're interconnected to our environments, right? That that dance of contingencies that occurs between me and you and me and, you know, my physical environment mm-hmm. and nature. And, and then, you know, the structures, the interlocking behavior contingencies, you know, the macro systems, all this stuff is just like there's so much there that as a field – uh, we can contribute our gifts to if we approach it effectively, right? If we if we communicate well, if we work well with others, if we listen, but we maintain those values of our science in in mm-hmm. a in a in a positive way, right? It's it's and it's a tough balance. And you, all you got to do is you know go on Facebook and <laughs> you know look at everybody uh, the back and forth on all this stuff. And yeah. uh, um, but there's something there, and and I think it's a move that uh, we need to make as a field uh, to to really see the impact uh, of, of the kind of things that we do. And, you know, that same feeling that I had when I first saw that kid, you know, walk up to another student and say like, hey, you're it or whatever, you know, that like you want to cry, right? You kind of yeah. get that, that, that overwhelming feeling. I want to feel that all the time. Yeah. And I want to feel that I want to feel that in my work with communities. And I want to feel that in, in my work, um, you know, if I'm if I'm working on policy or if I'm, you know, advocating, you know, for changes in, in government programs, I want to have that same feeling that this thing that I applied that really looks at functional relations um, made a difference in somebody's life or in, 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 you know, in the world, especially for marginalized people, right? That, that should really be our role, uh, I think, is, is looking how, not how we can be, you know, the kings and queens of everything and the smartest and the best and the best data and everything, is how we can integrate ourselves as a part of those systems and how we can contribute to them, right? That should be like our main goal is like, mm-hmm. how can I help this system, right? Mm-hmm. We should we should all go to our behavior analytic deathbeds 
with a smile <laughs> with a smile on our face that we did something that improved our communities. Yeah. Right. Um, and if we're not doing that, it's time to kind of look at it a bit. And um, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole like I said, that's a whole other uh, podcast rant. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that. Well, I think we're def- I'm definitely going to take you up on that and, and talk about some of the good work you're doing in uh, Indigenous communities in Ontario and that sort of thing, because I think that this, this is the stuff you're talking about, and I think this is the direction we as a field need to go, so I'm looking forward to that. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's just super awesome. Or just a, I, You called it a rant. To me, it was, it was just a, a wonderful story, and I really appreciate it. Oh, I really appreciate uh, the invite and uh, uh, had a great time chatting with you today, and I hope we get to do it again. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks again, Louie. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.